record. Welcome to the Where Two or Three podcast, Christian thinkers finding their place at the table of communication scholarship. Before we begin, the views and discussions of this podcast do not necessarily reflect agreement with the views of Martin Luther College. All right, let's pray. The eyes of all wait upon thee, O Lord, and thou givest them their food at the proper time. Thou openest thine hand and satisfiest the desires of every living thing. Amen. Amen. So we just got a little bit of a shock just now before we came on, and that was when we saw that we have 7,500 downloads. Yeah, 7.2 thousand. Okay. Yeah. My first thought was, I don't know if I would listen to us. I I do once out of necessity, (laughs) and that's about it. I mean, I know this is like podcasts that get millions and millions, and we know that's not in that scale, but still. 2024 is next year, so we'll be... (laughs) And we saw that we have a perfect 5.0 rating. And yes. so I would like to, well, there's one rating that yeah. is five. So, and I would like to appeal to our listeners, please don't rate us. Yes. We're, we're happy where we are. We're, gonna, <laughs> we're closing the submissions. It's, it's, only, it's only downhill from there. No so, more reviews, please. No more reviews, please. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, so much fun. Hey, I'm looking yeah. at a, I'm looking and distracted by a t-shirt. So it's homecoming weekend at Martin Luther College. Oh. And the theme is Barbie Oppenheimer kind of a thing. Barbenheimer. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So there are black t-shirts around campus that are uh, my colleague in the Hebrew department. is mm-hmm. Oppenheimer, so there's just a mushroom cloud behind him. <laughs> 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 and then yours truly is on a t-shirt as a Ken doll. And, it, it's, and, it's, and it's pink. <laughs> I'm so oh, proud. Man. I'm so proud. It only rivals the day when I was Cupid. There was a little <laughs> Mark Poster <and> Cupid. <laughs> a little oh, cherub, little a little cherub, you know, with my face on it. Yeah. So gotta love oh, MLC. I remember, uh, gotta love MLC. Yeah, th- th- those were fun times. There's also is there another event like that in the spring? I think I recall doing a sure. parody rap between you and another professor. And, uh, winter Carnival. Winter yeah, Carnival. Winter Carnival. Yeah. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. I remember that was. A, oh, that's that was still a lot out there. So thank you very much. That's still out there. I made a spelling error in the uh, the captions because I was on no sleep during student teaching as I was putting all of that together at two a.m. the night before. <laughs> well, it's a uh, beautiful piece of work. I know it was a lot uh, of hours. Is uh, no, it was fun. It actually, I think, in a lot of ways, helped. Uh, ended up pushing me towards a film career. Yeah. Without me, you know, attempting that, it just kind of spurred yeah. on a lot of other uh, work and opportunities, but no. So I was two students impersonating myself and another colleague and doing a rap battle. Yeah. And the, that the, video the is video also closed so- for reviews. <laughs> no more reviews allowed. <laughs> 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 you I, can still find it. I think there was I, actually, every once in a while, someone will like it or leave a comment on it and I'll just get reminded of it randomly <laughs> throughout the year. I, I, I worry that I told this story in this podcast. I'll make it quick. That I, When I finished my defense for my PhD, did I ever tell you this? I finished my defense for my PhD and one of the committee members, a guy from Wesleyan in Virginia, um, mm-hmm. Virginia Beach, said, we got one more thing to do before we can wrap this up as far yeah. as, you know, being a doctor. <laughs> and he pulled up the rap battle that oh, he made. No. <laughs> 
<laughs> and so we all sat there and watched it. <laughs> it was great. It really, I mean, seriously, is a good piece of work. Very oh, good was, piece of work. It was fun to put together. A yeah. lot of credit to uh, uh, Jared Natsis and... And Cherney. Was it, was it Ethan Cherney? Uh, no, it was Mike. Um, Mike Cherney, yeah. Yeah, okay. And then uh, John Woody also helping on the video side of things. And then... That's right. Um, yeah. So was, how uh, would listeners... Fun little thing. How would listeners search for it? Uh, I think if they just type epic rap battle of MLC, it's got, it kind of parodies of what was, I mean, back in the early days of YouTube when, when people right. would make fake rap battles of Abe Lincoln no, I get versus, it. I get it. versus, uh, uh, well, <laughs> there's a whole ton of them they, they made one that was like Hillary versus Trump. They made one sure. that was, uh, who is it? Abe Lincoln versus, uh, Chuck Norris. <laughs> that was just a random one. It was funny. This, uh, Darth Vader versus Hitler. You know, all sorts of really weird, <laughs> really oh, weird great. battles. And so it kind of parodies that. It tries to mimic so, that style. And say, say it again. Just epic rap battle MLC. Epic rap battles of MLC. Oh, I, I can't forget uh, Carl Boder, who did the the announcer voice. That uh, really just ties the thing together. Oh, yeah, yeah. At yeah. the front and end. So. No, it's, oh, it's great. beautiful. <clears throat> yeah. Great times. All right. Um, Time for devotion, I guess, huh? Yeah. Okay. So this will be a whole different tone that we just um, enjoyed together. So this summer had one of those classic campfire conversations with Mm -hmm. one of my children, one of my daughters, late at night, and we're the only ones up still, and things got really open, and I kind of had thought I knew what she had gone through when she went to college, uh, secular university. And that is on the table today. I want to maybe say a few things about what I've learned from kind of going through the experience with her, sort of. Um, but anyway, so here we are talking, and she told me what I didn't know, which is that her first week at college, University of Minnesota Morris, um, she, I think the second day already, she was in the shower she said, just sobbing, and she was praying, Lord, don't let me go, over and over. Lord, don't get, don't let me go. And it was because of, you know, a, a Christian student would be challenged every single day at the worldview level. And she's also a very scientifically minded person, really brilliant. Um, and so the first or second day, she learned things that, that were false arguments that she'd been equipped with. And so there she is, sobbing. God, don't let me go. Now, she told me that God answered her prayer in terms of having peace of mind about the things that were already kind of, you know, disturbing her without really actually getting clear answers to those things. She just had peace of mind. And so it's really interesting. Thinking about, well, we're going to talk about Gary Habermas eventually, a very important figure in resurrection apologetics. We'll Mm -hmm. get to him eventually because he's just so critical. And his contribution is so immense in terms of Christ being raised and how we know historically. But his his later work, and some of this is just what my colleague has told me, so I don't want to show off or, any, or pretend anything I'm not. But his later work apparently has been in how do people explain their unbelief? What do they, what do they give as the reasons for not believing? And we know that whatever they say won't be the whole story. They're you know, we're by nature blind and hostile to God. But but what do they say is actually pretty important too. And what he's discovered is he would say 80% of people 
it's really about suffering. It's really about life is hard, and I have a hard time reconciling that to what Christians say about God. So that's most people. And part of me says that's partly why I don't completely invest all my eggs in apologetics, because for most people, most people, it's really life is hard. Well, there's 10%, if I'm getting this right, 10% where it is, it is an intellectual problem. It just doesn't make sense to them, logically, rationally. And another 10%, if I have this right, it's, it's people that want to live how they want to live. So it's the autonomy thing. No one's going to tell me what to do. And I think part of that is also, who do I want to hang out with? What kind of people do I want to be with? Yeah. And so those are the reasons. Um, <clears throat> back to my daughter, um, she had gone through some immense physical pain. And it was bro- it, we were brokenhearted because we didn't know what it was. We had no diagnosis, and it was really awful. So no, no reason to have confidence it would go away. And so these were tough, tough times. And so what Habermas discovered is that you can have that intellectual challenge introduced into your mind if you're a Christian person, and it can be there for a long, long time and not do any real harm. It's just, I just don't understand what to make of evolution, let's say, and it can go on for a long, long time. But then introduce pain introduce suffering and that thing begins to really fester that thing kind of wakes up again and yeah but but the evolutionists are calling me a fool too and and so that's why it was so kind of remarkable to hear that she had just come through that time and that didn't happen to her and so the text i want to read for a devotion here at the end of the devotion is a text that she alluded to Uh, She referred to this as she was explaining, I have peace even when I don't have everything answered. And by the way, before I forget, that's that's a burden I really feel for uh, apologetics is that we don't suggest to young people, for example, that with the 10-week Bible study, you will now go out there and conquer the world with apologetics. It's... You're gonna you're gonna lose because pe- people mm-hmm. have spent their genius for decades on this question: how to debunk Christianity. And so, we can really help them in a couple of areas. We'll talk about they can trust their Bible, and Christ is raised. We can do some real good work for them. But mm-hmm. as much it's about what will it be like when you don't have the answer, you know, what's it going to be like when you're sitting yeah. in that space? And so here's the here's the section of scripture that she alluded to. Um, And this is probably the most important scripture that we would have on the table as we talk about apologetics, you and I, too. So this is 1 Corinthians, beginning at verse 18. I'm going to read a few verses here. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. 
So she just said this great, brief, but heartening thing to a dad about the foolishness of God that is Christ crucified and raised. So that's going to segue into some other thoughts, but that's the devotion. So I'll give you a chance to um, yeah, that's, unscriptedly uh, respond. Yeah, there's. A, it reminds me of the, you know, when there's a thorn in the side, everything else becomes difficult too. It, it there's a, it, it makes sense that Habermas would find that uh, mm-hmm. when when you introduce the non-intellectual suffering, <laughs> like the mm-hmm. the actual pain, you know, grief, then those dormant questions that weren't answered will now come to the surface again because you're looking mm-hmm. for more answers. You're looking for an escape hatch, maybe. Um, something to give you some reassurance. Yeah, it's heartening to hear. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I've, I've, when I dropped her off at college, I thought I knew what I was getting her in for, what she was getting in for, and it would take me a while to realize. Um, as the story began to come out, she would say, for example, that she sat in class those first days and said to herself, my dad's never been here. Mm-hmm. Um, my high school teachers have never been here before. So we're not blaming her science teachers for the fact that she went kind of armed with some scientific arguments that just fell apart on the first day. You know, when she's a smart girl, but one was about DNA re- replicating itself and just, is that, yeah, you know. Is, you kind of take it as, as what it is when you're told and then it's like you just get the ground swept from underneath you. Yeah, yeah. So one way we've, we've talked about it together, her and I, is that it's like the Wells bubble burst for her in a way that it'll never be there again. So we talk about the Wells bubble being, you know, we're insulated by Christian teachers, Christian family, Christian friends, and and there's something very wonderful about that sort of incubation of of our mm-hmm. Christian life, right? But she sits there in, the, in, in her first day in class, even maybe before that, in the dormitory, and just... What she's seeing around her is like all these different versions of human thriving, different versions of living life that all look very, like they're working just fine, you know? And so one Christian philosopher named Charles Taylor has a phrase for this called naive faith. In naive faith it would be to believe in Jesus because you can't imagine the alternative. It would be to be a Christian because, well, what else could I be? You don't really know of anything else realistically. And that's what burst for her. And that's over. She can never go back there again. And so other worldviews that are apparently, at least on the mm-hmm. surface, sort of sort of valid, you know. So her Christian worldview was really challenged. But um, Charles Taylor has another term. It's called the secular social imaginary kind of a strange word secular social imaginary and the the idea is that i can tell you my worldview i can put that in words if i think about it where everything came from my worldview is what happened to everything so what's what's wrong with everything three what counts as redemption what counts as hope so i can tell you those things but the secular social imaginary is Something I can't tell you so easily, or what a person can't tell you, it's the pictures in their head. It's it's what human thriving looks like. It's what living the good life is all about. It's those pictures. And the secular social imaginary is that people have these visions of thriving, living life quite um, quite apart from God, quite with God nowhere in their thoughts. 
I'm nowhere present in the backdrop of their thinking. And so it's like the classroom, um, a man, for example, named P.Z. Meyer, who is a really angry atheist. He does disgusting things in his hatred of Christianity. I mean, just, I don't even want to mention what he does to, to show his contempt for Christianity. Well, so in the classroom, he's going to reach for my daughter. He's going to take his best shot at her, and he did, as far as her faith. But then the secular social imaginary is how the university reaches not just for her mind, but also for her, her loves. We dropped her off in the dorm, and there's a big punch bowl by the, by the elevator with a, a punch bowl full of condoms, and the sign says, have fun, girls. And so that's not reaching for her worldview necessarily or for her intellect, it's reaching for her love, it's reaching for the kind of life she could want to live, and so on. So she was really up against it. And so I didn't really join the secular university as far as education until I was in my 40s. Um, you must have some comments mm -hmm. about what it's like to be in that world. Yeah, I was, it was my first year of college um, in, in Wisconsin. <clears throat> and it was, uh, I, I did feel very similar. It was like the bubble's mm -hmm. gone. And there's no going back to this uh, sheltered, for lack yeah. of a better term, sort of existence where you don't have to stand your ground or you don't need to carry a shield with you uh, or have that ready to go because no one's going to be attacking. Mm -hmm. no, you're, you're not in danger. But then you leave that and all of a sudden it's... Um, it's yeah, it's it's very eye opening. The it feels weird discussing it in such a aggressive terms, like battle <laughs> terms. But it it is kind of um, there there are a lot of similarities, so it's not it's not too bad. But it's a uh, it there's there's another layer of uh, in the back of your mind. What do I have to be ready to answer? It's it's like another another part of the brain has to be turned on, or there's another layer or filter that you have to go through before you say words, just as a just to be conscious of the environment mm -hmm. that you're in, and to be to be prepared as you're moving around in day to day life. And it's not it's not it's a radical change, but it's also not it's not uh, completely disorienting. It's just it's very different. Um, it's a. It's like you're in a parallel lane mm -hmm. now, so you're still moving forward, but you're it, the traffic's different over here. Yeah, you know, one way to kind of get at that is the idea that human reason is socially situated, so that what counts as reasonable changes from one social context to another. It's like how comfortable I can be talking about Jesus in a classroom here at MLC, but I think she goes to to where she went to school. To school, excuse me. And she just knew in her bones how it would be received if she spoke the language mm -hmm. of faith. So what counts as reasonable just changes yeah. and is so is yeah. so palpable. Right? Yeah, part of what's eye-opening about it is you'll say it's not like it's the first time you've you've made an argument like this mm -hmm. before, but you'll say it and the reception is completely different. Yeah. So that's what's jarring exactly, about it. Right. It's it's uh there's a different sort of something going on here that I haven't been able to, you know, experience before. And, uh, you know, the sequence of events that I'm used to is now changed. Exactly right. And so I have to reorient myself 
Uh, so today. part of that, though, too, is the minority being the minority among all these alternative ways of living life. And so <clears throat> there's that, too. You're just you can just feel so alone. And maybe you maybe you yeah. aren't. Maybe that's just a perception that you're the, the lone person of faith there. But yeah, yeah, that is that was part of the game. Well, the game, I call it. But uh, there is a, a little bit of a song and dance to figuring out what someone else believed because a lot of people wouldn't be very upfront with mm-hmm. their faith. And so you'd, you'd find out in intriguing little ways you, I'd started leaving. It's like a modern equivalent of drawing a fish in the sand yeah. and seeing what happens, yeah, totally. you know? And so just in the way that you're, you're talking and the way that you, uh, the way that you phrase things would be specifically biblical, but just sounds academic. And so uh, you can kind of find out there. Um, and then when I, I had one year of that and then went back to MLC. So it was in the bubble, but also with like a little bit of that culture shock still with me, mm-hmm. just like, Oh man, it's a different, uh, that's what it's like out there. Um, and then back into it for, for grad school, which was, I felt more equipped for sure. I was definitely don't take that one year of, um, that first year of college for granted, I learned a lot. I learned how to, um, how to be in that. It was valuable, uh, to have that going into grad school versus having, had that been the first time I had ever talked to really anyone academically about faith or like matters, it would have been, um, I would have been much less, uh, much less equipped, so to speak. Yeah. And I'm kind of glad you said that because my daughter had another professor who they called Oscar and Oscar was a man of faith. He just was a man of faith. Didn't happen to be Lutheran, but I think he was significant for my daughter and then for my son-in-law. So she not only survived the academy, but she also rescued somebody else and married him, rescued somebody else spiritually. But so at a senior seminar, there I am. And Oscar is watching my daughter with at least as much pride as I am in his face. And, so there's some beautiful people there too, and it mm-hmm. opened up a whole world to her. And and so, you know, thankfully she survived spiritually. But it's not like it's all bad. No one's. I would yeah. never suggest that for a second. It's just there's a dangerous element for a young person who isn't taking their own soul very, very seriously. It would be remiss of me to say that I consciously chose to leave that environment because I felt myself slipping mm. that way. Mm. If, if I had been there for four years, I don't know if I would be, if I would have, <laughs> if God would have held me the whole time as, as he did, you know, it's, uh, yeah, so it's, yeah. it is, uh, the environment was not very conducive to, um, a brain that wasn't fully developed. Yet. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Let me mention that we're looking at some handouts here with slides and stuff. And then, you remind me of this Pew research that would suggest that if you're just going to say the university is going to destroy your child's faith, that's that's overstated. That's not really what happens. And so the Pew research says three things. One is that this secular university actually exposes young Christians, one, who have only a superficial grasp of Christian truth as they enter in. So mm-hmm. a popular professor says something about, well, no one believes no one takes the Bible seriously anymore, which is just patently false. But it's the first time a child, uh, student has heard that or a young person has heard that. 
and it exposes that superficiality. Mm -hmm. Two, it exposes those young people who were already disconnecting from the church long before they went to college, maybe sophomore year in high school. And three is where I get a lot of my passion from for this stuff is the university exposes young Christians who have no mature Christian mentor to run to when the questions when the questions get real mm-hmm. and the questions get hard. And so that's what I want to be. I want to be the person that can be the one that child runs to. I saw some research that said a young person who asks questions about his or her faith is more likely to retain it. And that's kind mm-hmm. of a game-changing thing that far from panicking when my child has questions, I can be really, really glad about that. And then... That they ask in the first yeah. place is a huge... Assuming I'm prepared to help them through the dilemma, you know. So how did Abby survive the university? I'm I'm just so proud of her. She she went to an old Wells church in an old 70s building in a church basement. And this this uh, quiet girl began, a, um, what do I want to say, began a college ministry, a campus ministry. It was just four or five mm-hmm. people in a basement yeah. of a church <laughs> every Tuesday night. And so... Yeah, I, I feel like there comes a time when you want to be willing to tear yourself open and say to a young person, you know, dear one, they're going to eat you alive if you do not stay connected to your community and connected to your mm-hmm. to your sources, which is the scripture and the word, word and sacrament. And to have that kind of seriousness about um, the implications of not staying connected. I'm going to say the spirit won't let you go without a fight. But this is... This is how she survived, mm-hmm. really. Um, now, there's a theory that says, it's just from a hum- human communication standpoint, that it's it's called inoculation theory, which says if you just simply stay exposed to your original worldview, you will tend to retain it. And so, okay, humanly speaking, there is that truth, but far more it is to think about the spirit and, you know, and the grace of God yeah. is not letting us yeah. go. Yeah. coming after us if we stray. Very much so. There's one thing I wanted to touch on in the scripture that you read in the devotion, which was, uh, mm-hmm. hadn't struck me before, but there's a very clear distinction between what the Jew and the Gentile look for in terms of apologetics. One is mm-hmm. specifically looking for reason, and another is specifically looking for wisdom. And I just thought that was an interesting uh, Interesting observation that it was necessary to delineate those things in the passage. And I don't know if I don't know if there's anything behind that, but it just struck me as uh, curious. Yeah, you know, I I I'll find myself quoting Tim Keller, uh, Presbyterian, who we don't agree with completely, and some people find this obnoxious to quote him so much. But he just he's in heaven now. He just was a good communicator and. And learned a lot of stuff in New York City as he plants a church there. So anyway, that was a very game-changing insight for him as to the thought that Jews look for this and Greeks look for that, that culturally speaking, there can be a thing that a given culture is kind of after, that kind of chases as a core value. So one example I think in our day might be all the people that are after the ability to live without being condemned, to live free of condemnation. And the the little structure that Keller offers is, it goes, yes, no, yes. 
So the answer is not no, period. That's terrible to want that. No, the answer is yes. Of course you want to live a life free of condemnation. But then the no, after you affirm that, the no is, but the way you're going about it will never work for you. It, you haven't found a way out of shame. and you, it's, it's going to still be there and it's going to fail. So the yes, no comes then a yes, which is in Jesus. There actually is a way to live a life free of being condemned. It isn't involving, you know, just flat out denial of who you are as a human being. No, not at all. Um, There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So that yes, no, yes thing strikes me as very winsome because it isn't just no. The Oreo cookie method. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) I think that was actually the devotion I did at MLC in, uh, for the senior year for the, the teachers. I think I used that same metaphor. Interesting. Okay. It's like a, a way to introduce, uh, there's a little bit of indirect communication there where you, you kind of belay the defenses that get immediately put up if you're initially hostile. And then you can, you can say, actually, you know, you're the man, you know, and, and then, <laughs> and then after that you can say, well, and that's not the end of the story. Either. There's, there's some good news afterwards mm-hmm. too. Another, right. another thing that, before, I mean, this is, I think, the last thing from the devotion, per se, was that there was also an element of not only confronting people who did not have faith, but also people who have faith, but not necessarily the same faith as you. So that was something that was also very new to me, having been in the Lutheran bubble for so long. And so that was a, another sort of avenue to begin to navigate where you're coming across people that I don't agree with you, but I also don't think that I'm not going to see you in heaven either. And so that was a, that was an interesting, an interesting uh, uh, path to navigate to just to get used to having that type of discussion where it's now it's no longer about the, you know, faith itself. Now it's more about uh, some aspect of uh, dogma. Right, and I think I think that's what Charles Taylor does mean that all the alternatives are not only it's not just you know materialism versus whatever believing in God, but it's it's every view of God under the sun that becomes a sea of alternatives that all can seem <clears throat> viable, but we're not going to concede that they are viable because of what we know about Christ yeah. raised. So yeah, so we we talked last time about all the things we don't want apologetics to be. It's not theodicy. It's not fideism and so on. Just to say a little bit more then about we, what we are after, what we would kind of embrace in our apologetic. Um, what I've just kind of been talking about is that it's, it's not only reaching people out there that I get excited about, but it's really defending those among us who are vulnerable. Um, again, going off to school, but there are other versions of that. Um, I like what one of our Old Fathers said about um, polemics or Christians arguing doctrine among Christians. He called this another, what it should be is another form of bringing good news. And what he's saying is, why have the argument about how we're converted? Why have the argument about what baptism is? Why even have the argument? If it isn't ultimately because of the grace that you want the person to have that you know to the highest level as a Lutheran Christian, the most unconditional gospel there can possibly be. So I love that, but I also like then to bring that phrase to apologetics, that 
Let it be another form of bringing good news. So let it, let it always resolve in Christ crucified and raised. And never assume, we said last time, that people already know that. So yeah. um, let me go quick through the other two points, and I'm going to let you talk a bit. So I guess maybe just one more, actually, is f- the, my, my screen here says faith seeking understanding, which is coming at it from a, the perspective of, I know that Jesus is true on other grounds than apologetics. I know that he's true based on the word of God and the spirit of God. And I've known this since my baptism. I don't know a day when I didn't know it. And so I know Jesus is true on other grounds. And from that place, faith seeks understanding. So I want to resolve the questions and I want to have answers for the things people that get in the way. And I want to think about science. I want to think about history. I want to understand um, in a more robust way the things I know by simple faith, um, by the simple grace of God. So there's something called presuppositional apologetics, which is something we don't buy into. We don't even need to get into what that is. But this is talking about having presuppositions. And as I've been saying, these other grounds of confidence, serene confidence. And that's part of why, if that's where I'm coming from, then that's why I'm not shaken by times I might go through when I don't happen to have a good answer at that moment. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was, I mean, reading the, the New Testament documents book by F.F. Bruce was like that for me, mm-hmm. where it, it seems, a lot of that book seems to be in the his, pure history of these texts. We're just examining in the context of all of the other literature that was being written at that time, what historians were like at the time, how they wrote things, the where documents were found and how we examine and try to find out, you know, how the, the textual analysis getting back to the source material, all of that isn't really making a, a faith argument. It's just making a historical mm-hmm. argument. And, in, and so to have that as a, another uh, foot to stand on is um, it was really, it, it does give a little bit of that relief. I, I don't feel like I'm, treading water anymore when I, when that type of uh, topic comes up. Yeah, absolutely. That is so true. Um, My response is that apologetics, as we defined it last time, can be this sprawling, huge academic field where, where um, the top minds among the Christian fold are making great contributions what I think for our purposes, and I'm not the only one to reach this conclusion, is that we don't have to do all of that as far as our equipping young people. We already said 80, 80% of the people, that's not really what the problem is. So mm-hmm. we, I think, can reduce apologetics to two core issues with a distant third. Two core issues, distant third. And so, and two of these really hang together. You just said it. One is the phenomenal reliability of the New Testament. So the popular prof can say, no one takes that book seriously, but we can say, you can say that if you like, but that's not what historians are saying. I don't mean just Christian historians. I mean any historians. That's not what they're saying, those who've invested their life in in the study of this set of documents. Not what they're saying at all. You can say, well, no one believes Jesus was even a real person anymore. Fine, but that's not what people say who know what they're talking about. No one says that who yeah. is credible in the field of history, period. 
Maybe there's a wing nut out there. Yeah, if, you, if you examine <laughs> that further, it, it falls apart very exactly. quickly. And you can say for distance third, and we'll unpack all this more as we go through <clears throat> this topic for a number of episodes, but there is a distance third. Um, it isn't as directly to do with Jesus as the fact of his resurrection and the reliability of the New Testament, but it's just simply the necessity of God. And there are some robust arguments that God is simply necessary um, based on reality as we see it. So there are, there are plenty of people who will say, just show me the evidence for God's existence because there really isn't any. But again, you can say that if you like, but don't say that at, at any philosophy department, philosophy department in any credible university. It's not that all philosophers buy into these arguments, but it is that they would concede that they are they are robust and significant. Um, Alvin Plantinga is another Christian philosopher, and he has caused a lot of hand wringing hand wringing among philosophy departments as they are more and more taken over um, by theists in more and more places, at least believing that God exists. So we'll table that for now. We can get into what those are, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm especially interested in that because I think. For better or for worse, most of my discussions are kind of in that philosophical realm where it kind of borders on that and theology. And it's, it is easy to find doorways where you're welcomed in, um, but it's not always arguing for your faith. Sometimes it's arguing about a purely a philosophical thing, which isn't, isn't related. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm, I'm very curious about that. I feel like it's hard to, for me to look outside and not just see a whole ton of signposts pointing, pointing towards a cross. It's, it's, uh, it's very difficult. Um, but I also, I'm trying to better understand what it's like, uh, not having been shown those signposts over and over and over again. And so to, to not take that for granted Mm -hmm. in in the conversation. Mm -hmm. So one thing I did want to circle back on with, uh, or if if you're still got a point, yeah. Yeah. Just, you, you triggered it that one thing that keeps this third issue, the necessity of God on the table, is that there are these powerful biblical versions of those same arguments. Like, why is there something rather than nothing is the cosmological argument. Well, the scriptures say every house has a builder. The builder of everything is God, and the the skies declare the glory of God, and the heavens declare the work of his hands. And so there are biblical versions that I almost prefer because maybe they don't trigger the resistance a person may have heard back in college, you know. And so those are important. We'll get to defeaters again eventually. So the idea that something in somebody's mind that if this is true, then Jesus isn't. Well, these three core issues are easy to relate to three defeaters. So if Christ is dead, then all bets are off. That's a profound defeater. If I can't trust my Bible, all bets are off. And if there actually were no reason to exist, to believe that God exists, all bets are off. And so they kind of become sort of the max, the, the maximal defeater, so to speak. And, but the big picture point again was that for the sake of the vulnerable among us, we don't have to think of doing all of it. If, if I can, Give a young person confidence about Christ alive and this New Testament truly is phenomenal. And the evidence, as you're saying, is all around us. The whole universe shouts God is in in a number of marvelous ways. That will be a good, good start just yeah. to hit these issues hard and hit them well. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. If, yep. if we're not praising God, the rocks will cry out. You know, that's <laughs> the... Mm-hmm. 
That's what I'm reminded of. Uh, the one thing I wanted to circle back to was uh, discussing how when framing apologetics with people that share a similar faith to you, so we have uh, dogmatic differences with them, the thinking of that as, as terms, in terms of bringing the good news, um, that reminds me of, as we talked about the episode before, thinking of apologetics simply as witness, just witnessing your faith, bringing good news to people. Um, and it's also one of the things that I, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm erroneous in this, but I found it easier to have discussions with people where it was uh, discussing a theological difference. Um, there is still a sort of comfort that, you know, I, I don't doubt that this person is going to be in heaven with me. They believe that Jesus died on the cross to save them from their sins. And that was, I tried to find joy in that as like a starting point for this. It's not trying to now, like there's no, the stakes aren't as high. I don't feel the, the pressure of like trying to like witness my entire faith to this person. Cause they have an element of that already. Um, and then another, another, aspect of it was uh, kind of taught me how to discuss uh, the conversations around apologetics without needing to feel like I was trying to win an argument. It was more just a, and, and sharing the good news, simple witness is, is very much in that vein where it doesn't have to be this argumentative battlefield uh, with people's souls at stake. It can be a much more pleasant conversation. It can be a, a, a joy to share and to, to think of it in that way has been that that has also helped where I tend to, especially in the uh, non-apologetic realm in terms of argument, talking about narrative, talking about other things that I'm very passionate about, education, I, I'm, <laughs> I can be very assertive in my, in my arguments. And so to, to have a little bit to something to remind me to slow down is, is very nice. Mm -hmm. I'm going to not remember everything we've ever talked about on this podcast. <clears throat> Just briefly, there is such a thing as ecumenical joy. We don't use that word ecumenical positively in our circles, but you get to be glad that somebody knows who Jesus is, even though you're mm -hmm. disagreeing about things that are desperately important, but mm -hmm. that that can be that kind of conversation. Yes. Yeah. And, and our whole passion is to, again, help them towards the kind of confidence that we have by grace and how different that is when you just don't share a frame of reference with somebody. Yeah. I think for example of people who are trying to manufacture meaning in sort of an imminent frame. This is Charles Taylor again. So no second floor of transcendent, no higher thing kind of seeping down from above this higher sense of, I don't know. I like to say, you were not wrong when you looked at the universe with awe. You were not wrong when you felt you mm -hmm. owe the universe an apology. You were not wrong in this, this uh, transcendent understanding that you had that, that, that um, the natural knowledge of God is, has brought to you. You know in your bones that there is a God. That everybody knows that unless they are consciously denying it. But so when we don't share that frame of reference, people who are trying to have a meaningful life. On the, on the first floor, let's say, without any higher thing. It, it, we, might, we might assume that you and I come along and we can name the thing they've been hungering for and searching for their whole life, this thing called meaning. But 
that day's kind of gone. We, we're living in a truly, truly secular age where people do live their lives entirely without reference to God. Mm-hmm. And so that communication challenge of just not talking past each other yeah. and, and talking in the same categories is enormously difficult. But the, the crossover is, as you're saying, another form of bringing good news is the heart behind, you know, why I'll, why I'll take it on, God willing. Yeah. The, the thing that I found striking was, especially grade school, high school, discussing uh, people, you know, say, who aren't Lutheran, but still Christian, who would have uh, differences in interpretation of scripture, etc. Oftentimes, when having those conversations in school, it was almost as if we were still arguing with someone who had no faith at all. Mm-hmm. And so to see firsthand what that's like, how it's different, and to, to try to find a little bit more <laughs> joy in that and, and use that as like common ground instead of completely butting heads against someone when it comes to something like baptism or et cetera, that, that also was very eye-opening. And then it, it's helped me, I think, in being able to uh, share better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So when we go out there, and as you brought up last time, try to just simply be transparently Christian, what can happen is instead of you find yourself, you know, in an apologetic moment, you can find yourself just sharing in that joy with someone. Yeah. Who, yeah, you too. Yeah, me too. You know, mm-hmm. and it's it's quite wonderful, really. I had a layperson once say to me, he said, what I do when I meet somebody new, I force myself in the first, whatever, 30 minutes at some point to say, hey, can I just ask you this? Do you believe in God? And, you know, and he says he just finds himself in some fascinating conversations just with that simple opening and it just isn't rocket science to yeah to to be able to say that when he's when he does that no it might get messy it might get messy a person will say well why do you ask and you would say i don't know he's been good to me or um, i can't think of anything more important or well you're a thoughtful person i'm just guessing you've thought about this and yeah and um to not be to to not be so afraid of finding and using these kind of simple openings because there might be a whole lot of joy there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, transition into back into the defeater. Is it time for that? Yeah, I think so. We've kind of alluded to that a couple of times. I think yeah, yeah. In the last podcast or the last discussion, and uh, and even even here as we've been introducing maybe some of these. Uh... So let me read the scripture that I think gives a very powerful warrant to the the idea that I would then review briefly. But 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1 says, the Apostle Paul says, By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. And what's amazing to me is by the time he gets to verse 3, after that opening, by the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, then it gets into this militaristic language. Verse 3, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. An example I think of is, ah, people are basically good. People are basically good. (laughs) 
So Paul says, we demolish every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And there's a pretension. People are basically, basically good. So um, strongholds really is the same thing, in my opinion, of a defeater, as we said last time, that a thought in somebody's head, unselfconsciously true, unexamined, just never looked at it, it just, just feels so, so true, and I take it for granted, um, that if that thing is true, then Christ is not. So that was our definition of a defeater. Mm-hmm. I gave an example last time of how they change. I talked about hell, how the defeaters change from time and place to time and place. Another one might be, it's wrong to say that you are correct in the truth that you hold. It's wrong to say that you have the truth. It's wrong and arrogant to say that. Yeah, I've come across that even recently. Oh, really? Yeah. So in some places, it's not a defeater. Why would I listen to you? A Muslim person might say, if you don't even think you're right, why would? Yeah. But here in our culture, in a postmodern milieu, I suppose, it just has that quality and the answer is well you're telling me i'm wrong in my point of view and i don't mind that i think that's just what we do but isn't the whole issue does your worldview have within it the resources to be kind in in disagreement and that would be the important question not the fact that we have different views and so what i like to think is that we can understand what the top 20 defeaters are let's say and we can get more practice at thinking those through and discussing them amongst ourselves. And when my friend says, I make myself ask a person, do you believe in God? He's, he's going to quickly get trained in defeaters. And when the person says, no, well, why not? Well, I just don't understand yeah. the part about hell. And you'll quickly learn what they are. Although I should say that they, at the same time, they are, they are inexhaustible. I was... Thinking of when I was a young pastor knocking on doors, met a guy, scientifically minded, had a, had a whole wall full of books on science and evolution. And his main thing was that Adam had nipples, which sounds outrageous to even say it, but that was his defeater. <laughs> so, oh man, I don't know how to, how to help you with that one. <laughs> it's but, over. But something, something you said before we got on in recording. It reminded me of, because as I walked out the door after this long, frustrating conversation, I remember saying to him something like, this is just so sad to me that God loves you the way he loves you in Jesus, and you just don't know and seem not to care. Yeah. And what I'm thinking of is, I, I hope I would say that now. I hope I would be that much heart on my sleeve, transparently Christian, as I keep repeating, as I was then. Because you, you had a story, I forget what your story was, it triggered triggered that for me, that, man, God loves you, and yeah, it's the whole reason we're having this conversation. Do you yeah, I think, about? so, we, had, we were recapping our, a previous, our previous discussion where we're talking about appealing to someone outside, um, you know, outside of the bounds of what we under, uh, can understand or you know, reason with, given the, our mm-hmm. limited understanding. And then also... A recent conversation where I had uh, it had gone from the realm of discussing the idea and it had become a personal attack against me and specifically my curiosity at that time. And it took me a while to like figure out what had happened. Um, but I was kind of drawing a line. <laughs> I'm fully willing to discuss any idea. My faith is not off limits for discussion. 
that all of this is perfectly fine, but that's the realm that it needs to stay in when we're having that discussion. When you start to turn it on the the person itself, it's that that just turns into it's as disgusting as politics or watching a debate or just hearing any sort of propaganda. It's just like there's no need to do that. And I mean, one of the things I remember from from grad school is if you you make that what is it ad hominem type of attack. You lose. That's you lose called. the fight. Yep. The argument is gone because you have now resorted to like actually attacking the person. Um, but mm. the converse of that is, I was as I was, I went on a run afterwards, and the my thought was, but no, it is personal. The only reason that I'm having this conversation is because I care deeply about your eternal well-being. There's a God who loves you and cares about you and has done ineffable things to, to bring that and make that available to you. I've been given that and I want to share that with you. That's why the discussion's happening. So maybe it's not the same as an ad hominem attack, but the, it, it did strike me as it is personal. And that, that's why it's important. And to remember that that's the goal of all of this. It's not about winning the argument. Who cares if I defeat your idea of what evolution is for the evening and you still don't have faith? I'm trying to share with you the thing that you have to, there's a, it's a different view when you have faith. The, The cross looks different. And that's what you're trying to share. You're trying to like help someone be able to step in those shoes even for a moment and just be like a, a sliver a reflection of you know what god's done for you and that's what it is like to just be transparently christian just a tiny fragment of a reflection of what christ has done if that's what i can share in the moment that's that's many times the you know the holy spirit will do with that what he does you know i'm thinking of the the rawness of that potentially and the emotion that we might in our circles be sort of skeptical about the emotional part where I, again, tear my heart open and say, this is all I have. Just so you know what we're talking about right now, this is all I have. And where the professor you and I both know from in Kayla State, that was kind of, at one point, one conversation without her attention. It wasn't that it was subjective and slippery and don't go emotional. It was, oh, this means something mm-hmm. to you. What we're talking yeah. about means something to you. And so, yeah, I love I love the way you express that. I love the open-heartedness of that, that our apologetic is not, is not sterile and it's not lawyerly because sometimes you hear kind of a lawyerly connotation when people talk about the Greek word apologia as if we're now in that kind of mm-hmm. mode. And, and I don't think yeah. Paul is in that kind of mode when he's before Agrippa. I think his heart is torn open. and It's, it's both. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's reasoned. It's... And, and some are more, yeah, some are more, sometimes one is more apparent. But there are, uh, I mean, that, when that struck me as I was, <laughs> I was as I was running, <laughs> funny enough. But uh, in, in my breathlessness, that, that was what struck me is it had become personal, but it was an attack. And I was trying to, I was wrestling with that. And then it just became, no, it is, it still is personal, but it's a different, there's a different intention behind it completely. So we quoted Paul before Agrippa in part. What happens is Paul says it didn't happen in a corner about the resurrection. Go interrogate the witnesses all you want. Go see if the evidence all you want, Agrippa. What comes next is, if I can remember this, Agrippa says, 
Do you, in such a short time, think you're going to persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul's answer is basically, I would love for that to have you. Mm -hmm. Short time or long, mm -hmm. I don't care, short time or long, I would have you be as I am, he says, except for these chains around my ankles. Mm -hmm. and so, you know, it's hard to reconstruct that. What was the tone of that? It just sounds really personal and very passionate. Mm -hmm. And I personally am not skeptical of that. I'm going to that place. So, uh, talking about the de defeater then, Getting back to that, I think it's useful for, as we look for the place where a Lutheran Christian can be completely comfortable in apologetics, we really are talking about negative apologetics again. So I have come across something that I will call the apologetic conversation, which can describe, describe the very natural flow these conversations can go, and then also this potentially new space we might carve out just for the defeater issue. So it goes like this. Part one in the conversation. I might just say, do you believe in God? But it could be that I'm going to communicate to you who Christ is and do it the way I always have, using the Word of God as I try to impress upon you the importance, the infinite importance of Jesus and the, re the beauty and the reality of who He is. Just communicate that the way I, I always have. And so... I would speak to a skeptic in such a way that though he doesn't buy a word of it, he can know what the singing is all about. He can know why a person could want it to be true. doesn't buy it. So then I see your skeptical expression and I say, you're not buying it. Tell me why. And then I will hear your defeater. And you may have an endless array of these, but I'll be hearing what are among your most important things that get in the way for you. Like um, the Church of History has been a, has been a hot mess. Let's say, I mean, it's a psychological crutch. I mean, there's just so many of these. Yeah. So the idea is not to win the argument at that spot, but as we said last time, just to put the stone in the shoe for something that just seemed taken for grantedly true, or whatever. Just to put the stone in the shoe and make it shake a little bit. Yeah. How sure are you that this makes sense? The thing that you said. Then it is from there to get back to witness. Um, get back to an even more explicit witness by means of the Word of God. And that's our apologetic of the Word. And so I can say as a whole missionary that, I, you know, you're knocking on doors all the time and you, you have hundreds and hundreds of conversations that that really does describe their flow. It's just very natural. Um, but then there are others that go in circles and, are, and, and just are not so clean and nice as that. So yeah. you're outside the bubble, so you tell me, just how does that, how does that land on you? It, that, kind of flow it uh is is relatively uh similar i think sometimes in my conversations it sometimes starts with the defeater or where the philosophical mm -hmm. discussion leads to the defeater and that's the entry point and so there's yeah, you get to sort of bring the the beauty of your faith as the entry point in the, the flow of the conversation here, that gets to be part of the, you know, the response. But the, the defeater part in the middle is, is fairly consistent. And I like to think of it as you're almost, sometimes the answer that you'll get there is, as you said, like one of many. But usually I find that there's uh, maybe a few layers down that you have to go before you get to the actual core of what it is. And sometimes that the answers that are, readily available are 
consequential to something that's uh, maybe buried a little bit deeper or maybe a little bit more uncomfortable to talk about. And so that is uh, usually that's my entry point to the conversation is, is uh, I'm just curious about what you believe and just let's explore that and then ask thoughtful questions. And it's, I don't want it to make it seem like it's all oh, I'm gathering information that I can use to rebut against. No, it's just honestly try to find out and put yourself in their shoes. Can you imagine the you know terrible things that they've gone through where they would suddenly, you know, that would make them be resistant to the beautiful message that you've known? It's an alien thing, but to to truthfully try to stand in those shoes is uh if we can't do that, then the rest of the conversation isn't going to be taken very kindly so or or it will be just as hollow so so that i think is is usually how the conversation goes for me but it is uh the the beauty of it still gets to to play a part where you get to to open up to you get their turn and you get to let them put things on the table and then very naturally mm-hmm. most i mean most people are very excited to do that so they will happily tell you the things that they believe and you get to explore those and it's not alien at all. Mm-hmm. And then eventually I've found usually the, the question is returned and then you can start to share those things as well. Yeah. But the concepts are all yeah. still the same. They're just in a different order. Yep. Yeah. That makes sense. You can't really control it. You don't want to, but it's like uh, Sam Chan has the, the front porch, back porch thing. So the front porch is interests and, Tell me your story. Yeah. Back porch is what life is about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, or he calls it the coffee and the lunch. Yeah. Coffee is the one and then lunch is a little deeper. But people, you're right. People do not mind you showing profound interest in what they're all about. So we're going to definitely have to go back for, uh, yeah, I'm thinking how we hit listening pretty hard a while back. We're going to have to go back for sure to yeah. seek first to understand. Empathy and just, that side of things has been. Right. A fairly consistent, it's hard to ignore in any of these conversations. Right. So as far as defeaters go, then if 80% is about suffering and 10% is about, you know, intellectual problems and 10% is about how I want to live my life. If, if someone's defeater is hell, to go back to that, I really have to know in what way that's the defeater. So is it, does it make sense intellectually or is it a broken heart? And, that's going to make all the difference. It's a defeater, but it still can come from different places. One defeater can come from different, can emerge from different stories. And so I'd want to know that. I would just want to know that your heart is broken or you've got a mental puzzle you need solved because the, the approach will be entirely different. Yeah. I've also found, so, oh, sorry, the, no, you the, in, in that part of the conversation, I have found that sometimes it touches on all three of those different areas. So you'll have something start off with, I just can't conceptualize God in my mind. And then it turns into, oh, uh, and the problem of evil. You know, I, it's just suffering. So how can suffering possibly exist if the God is so loving and caring and powerful? And how, how is that possible? And then it, you, you'll touch on multiple of them. And so to find out which one is at the core of this or, or which one... Uh, is easier to speak to or what, what's the right one? You know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's trying to find out where the, where the core is coming from, which one of those is consequential 
or, or is it all of them together? And, and it will be kind of the opposite of what you'd said at the, at the beginning where, you know, you have these unresolved questions that you're allowed to stay dormant for a while. And then as soon as one of them is, you put pressure on one of them and now all of them kind of come to the surface and you sort of have to um, consider everything that's there instead of just the, just the one thing that you might've thought was the crux of the conversation. Mm -hmm. And so when you have these multiple things, that's when it can get tricky. I've found, I don't know. I don't know the answer. It's always going to be different for every conversation that's there, but to, to see sometimes being able to have a strong argument for one, there's still another one that's there and it's like, well, you've got to take, there's more more discussion to happen before anything really happens and so uh i, I don't want to make it seem so adversarial but there's you know say you win win one argument right or you you make a good point on one and then the the argument that they've been standing on has kind of faltered a little bit well that won't really change anything because there's still two or three left to go and so there's not really a it's not like you're going to make a breakthrough and all of a sudden everything comes crashing down. I think that would be wishful thinking. So maybe I'm rambling a bit, but at least in the, the no, no, not at this all. somewhat intellectual type of conversation, it, it is a bit more uh, chaotic. And so it's really important, I think, to, to dig into what, what's at the core of all of these things. If you're actually going to know the person, it's, it's, very, um, it's very important understood that's the reality i try to address by continuing to think about the apologetic of the word that i've been calling it it's just to bring the word of god into that mess and but not to not as if i'm the one that has to figure it out so yeah i've written books you know about what to say about this or that objection but i kind of am mindful of the fact that people do not reduce to their defeater Mm -hmm. They say a sentence, church is full of hypocrites, but that's not all there is to them. And yeah. There's a whole story behind that. And that's why there's no, it's never the wrong approach to listen and to want to draw out that story. Never mm -hmm. the wrong approach. So, yeah, I'm looking at uh, a little agenda here. There's something that I like, I forget who coined the term, but the soft apologetic is also to me very, very attractive. And so it's witnessing to Christ by means of art, by means of hospitality, just opening up a space at your table, um, caring what happens to people in this world. I remember a story of a Welsh pastor who had a, a man who was dying of AIDS and his whole life fell apart. And, but he was, the pastor was able to say, he knew that I was the only one in this world that cared what happened to him. And so the apologetic of caring what happens to people. Um, Paul Wendland at the symposium at seminary about apologetics years ago just had a line about our, our love, that it is, quote, un, as unanswerable as a sunrise. It's such a great, <laughs> great line. Our love is our proof of our teaching. And so soft apologetic doesn't mean not powerful. Um, someone said, this. I love this quote, I know that God exists because St. Box. St. Matthew Passion. I'm sorry. J.S. Bach, St. Matthew Passion exists. Mm -hmm. That's how I, know, how I know God exists because there's something transcendently beautiful that is, that is drawing me to a beautiful thing. And so I like that. There's a book that 
says, it's called Ancient Future Faith by Weber. Ancient Future Faith. Ancient, and what it's saying ancient is Future Faith, Weber. Ancient hyphen future, ancient future faith. And what it's saying is that our world, as bewildering as it is and as it feels like it's new, no, it's, there's nothing new under the sun, and that it actually is very much like the first century, where the first century church was so much about community and symbol and mystery and beauty, and we would draw people inside of that. For my son-in-law, that was very much in my mind as I hoped and prayed, you know, for thousands of hours that he would come to know Christ, this this boy who loved my daughter so much. And it really was largely about just drawing into the mystery and beauty and symbol and community and and looking at that from the inside and trying to show him a life and all my failures and sins and flaws that you can live inside this. You can you can really live inside this this reality because it's real. And mm-hmm. Yeah. So the soft apologetic, I'm sure you're, you're down for this because you love narrative. and I, I love, I, this is my favorite area of it, especially when it comes to the art part of it, because I mean, that's a large part of why I'm obsessive about narrative and structure and uh, reverse engineering stories. And how do you, how do you use those things? How can you witness through that? Even if you're not, it doesn't mean you're making a story about you know, a kid who was miracle raised from the dead. That's not what I mean. I mean, you find uh, little crumbs, little tiny signs that point towards something that you can, you know, you can just tell a a story about sacrifice by itself. There it is. That's the, that that's one of the ways you just tell a story about redemption, tell a story, any one of those qualities that comes through and it's, you can, be very transparently Christian there without needing to use any of the words that seem like it's so. And so it's a, it, it is very indirect, well, I know which is another reason that I think this. maybe both of us are interested in this. People meet is because that's a, yeah, it's a, people meet something. Yeah. So it's, Christian before it, it sneaks behind yeah. in a scandalous way as belonging to Jesus. And yeah, you said sneak finds the back door. Yeah. Finds the back door. So real good. Um, yeah. If I transition to a couple more things to go back for, what we don't want apologetics to be, typically as Lutheran Christians, but just biblical Christians, uh, a couple of thoughts on that that you can react to. So Kierkegaard had a thing, he was very concerned about a reason-based apologetic. And part of that was a concern that if you elevate what he called apologetic geniuses, so people in our midst who can win these wars on the stage, you know, with against Bill Nye, the science guy, let's say, that if I draw confidence from the fact that my guy won, even though I can't do it myself and I can't make the same arguments, it's a very superficial faith. It's really bound up in just some other person. And it discourages what he felt was we would call the apologetic apostles. He's using that word, in his, that word in his own way, but he means mm-hmm. to witness as the apostles do, that if it feels like a weak thing not to ground the truth of Christ in my powers of reason and so on, that's that the power of Christ might rest on the man and on the, on the nothingness of the man and on the, on the apparent nothingness of the gospel. And so to have the guy on the stage be the genius, brilliant, discouraging my simple witness we've talked about um, in the mode of Paul arguing again, 
with the word of God, with the Pharisees, um, Peter simply testifying to what he's seen. So if that makes any sense, we don't want to discourage the, the, the simple Christian witness because that would be a shame. Yeah. I think uh, Warwick Montgomery is this top shelf apologist who happens to be Lutheran. And he actually concedes in one of his prefaces of his books, he concedes that apologetics that we're talking about, reason, evidence, and so on, probably doesn't win that many people. He's, he contends that it may win may win people who are highly situated in the academy, for example, and they can become very important yeah. people. And they this just may need to be their path into faith. But that's quite a concession that for most people, we, we just don't want to be talked out of the simple witness as if it isn't powerful when it is. Exactly right. 10%. And I think to go back to Kierkegaard, if I understand his situation, it was that the Lutheran church of his time was very hollow, full of these intellectual people who just were just going through the motions. And so I would think that that's just a consequence of losing sight about what the faith is all about. And so if that ever happens, then everything else just falls apart. And now you're just that very philosopher. thing, philosophy with the Christian here, just Christian it, words slapped onto philosophy, right? Yeah. And so, and the great irony of most of his works and his pseudonyms was to almost mm -hmm. a jest at that, and then to to sneak in behind and and show the Definitely. the beauty, yep. that hides behind it. So, yeah, just to make sure that, and I felt that too, where I, most of my entry points into an apologetic type of conversation, where I'm sharing my faith, are in the context of a philosophical argument. And so that's where I think having a moment where I can say, no, this is, this is personal. This is, this is very important to me. You're, you're important to me. And you're very important to someone else too. And I want to tell you about that person. Like that's a, that is where I think there's a, a large space for that, where I'm, I feel less, uh, at, less cautious about going in that direction. Because if it becomes purely a philosophical argument, there's no, that's not a, a win that's not it doesn't accomplish anything and so yeah you yeah you're making me remember something from c.s lewis yeah. and it's all also goes to the debate picture c.s <clears throat> lewis once wrote a really surprising thing and it was i'm just going to paraphrase it it was it was that no piece of christian truth feels less reliable to him or less stable to him than the one he has just successfully defended in a debate. He said, because in that moment, it feels like that Christian truth depends on what he called this weak pillar, this weak pillar referring to himself. And so, which makes sense to me. And he has this arresting line, which is, for the apologist to be saved, <laughs> for the apologist mm -hmm. himself to be saved or herself, he must continually fall back, quote, into the thing itself. Fall back from the argument, fall back from the evidence, fall back from the brilliant reasoning into Christ. And whatever he meant by it, we would mean by it into worship around the means of grace. And so I, I school my students in this issue to learn to fall back to the thing itself, into the ground, into the way we are supreme, sublimely confident 
in Christ and never and never <clears throat> come to too heavy of a reliance of how well we argue things because that's what is just so, so striking about that quote. Yeah. Because you're never going to logic someone out of their suffering mm-hmm. or to find meaning out of that. It's mm-hmm. There's something else that has to happen, which is why I think the soft apologetics goes the hardest, if you will. <laughs> there's a, there's a, a, a great um, entry point there where it's a, almost, it's a gift because it relieves you of some of the, the burden of feeling like you need to successfully defend this thing. You can just purely show. Mm-hmm. Purely like, let's, exa- let's look at this. Let's examine this together. Or what did you think about that? And it, it doesn't have to have such a reason-based argumentative rules type of uh, conversation. There's, there's even a book about this by Philip Yancey. I think it's called Vanishing Grace, if I'm thinking about the right one. And he is arguing that there are three sort of groups that are gaining any traction at all with the Christian message in our culture. And one is, one is the artist. So my own son-in-law grew up with a peculiar love for Christian music, though he was not, though he was an atheist. Just a peculiar love for Christian music. It just got a hold of him somehow. And so that's very much part of his story. Number two is what we said before, those who care what happens to people in this world. We in our circles are nervous about sort of a social justice kind of approach that we don't want the mission of the church being the gospel to be eroded. But I think we can think through the fact that we still have to, there has to be reasons for people to know that we care what happens to them. And we have to blow the stereotype that we're hateful. And the third one is just simply people who sort of come alongside people and accompany them and accompany them on their journey, which really just means a, a very non-coercive witness. And that's a very Lutheran thing. A, a witness that is not trying to close the sale all the time, not trying to seal the deal, but just we will we will share from our heart what has come to mean the world to us to us, which is Christ crucified. And and I want to know what, what your journey is. Here's mine. And it's not that we concede that anything goes or we can both be right. But but just that way of coming alongside. And so those are the three groups that I think he has some good reasons, some good arguments for. And that's all soft apologetic. Yeah. So I think the best part of that last one, I didn't express very well the coming alongside, but really, really is the hospitality piece. It really is opening a space for, for the stranger that is a Christian space that we invite them into. So caring what happens to people, that is, I don't want you to be hungry. And, mm-hmm. and that one hospitality and art are just strong components of a soft apologetic. Especially those last two. I think the, the beauty of those ones is that both of those things are accomplished simply by just living as Christ did. Mm-hmm. And so if that is your focus, it will be very apparent that you care about people just by the way that you are acting in the world. And then uh, very easy to step alongside someone as they're suffering or growing or whatever the situation is. There's also, I mean, it reminds me very much of pedagogy and learning how do you be a teacher? What makes a good teacher? How how do you, uh, was it Mary Angelo? They won't remember what you say, but they'll remember how you made them feel. 
Maya? Maya, Maya Angelou, yeah. Mm. <laughs> Again, that's I've been never, a, a few. Maya. I've never quoted her in my and life. Maybe, so and maybe I've, maybe I've, uh, mis- maybe I've misappropriated the, the quote, but I remember the, <laughs> I remember the phrase and I remember the, the meaning behind it, which was mm-hmm. the things that people remember of you, or if they, they think about it, will be maybe not the exact words that came out of your mouth, but how you acted in the situation. Mm-hmm. In, a, in the same vein, then uh, they're not like, why would someone care about it unless they know that you care? And so that goes right to the second one, yeah, which is simple as that. It's as simple as just living the way that Christ did and seeing what happens. There's nothing as, there are a few things that are more joyful than when you get, you know, someone approaches you and like, I don't know, I don't know about all this Christianity stuff, but uh, if, if anyone, like if, if I, if seeing how someone lived their life uh, like you did makes me kind of consider it as a possibility. It's, that's what I want for, for all of the interactions that I have. And this just came in, up in class today, the, the term performative contradiction, which is I say this is all about the love of God for you and me both, and you're, but you're not getting that. You're not getting that from me. Performative contradiction. So there's, there are some areas within Christian apologetics that it just seems to me Lutherans have a unique answer that no one else does. And so I'm thinking about, on this list of things that don't interest me, are reading God's hidden mind. So you have the defeater that would be, you know, why are some saved, not others? And it's not fair of God if he would condemn to, to hell those that never heard the gospel. And so any other apologist out there would find a way to rationalize that. And there's all kinds of things that you hear to try to make that make sense to people. The Lutheran answer, which is so unique, is that let's just admit that God can seem unfair. Let's just admit that God can seem unfair. And that there are things that I will never understand with my puny human reason. And what do I do then? One of our fathers, Sig Becker, simply said, that's when I have the gospel. I only have the gospel at that moment to show me the true heart of God revealed in Christ on the cross. And that answer is only satisfying from, from this sort of Lutheran perspective, as far as I know. And so we're not, it, it's a version of what we did talk about, which is theodicy. Can God be defended? Can the ways of God be defended before men? And again, that just is another way to say, I'm not interested in that. Um, it's none of my business, really. Uh, what does God say? I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. This is not yours to know. That's that figure of speech where he just says, this is not yours to know. This is mine to know. And so here I'm putting it in terms of reading God's hidden mind. No, not at all. I will come to know God where he's revealed himself. Who wants to know God must listen to Mary's son. And and so this is a unique and I think a refreshing and an honest answer to one of the hardest questions there is. So that's my piece on that. I think we've kind of teased out everything I wanted to say about what we don't want it to be and what we do. Um, any things on your mind before we hit dessert? I think to speak to that last part, I'm trying to search the exact words in the Old Testament. But this is, it is something that comes up a lot when, when uh, I'm having a conversation 
about specifically around you know how why is there evil in the world and some of the like what what do people point to and they'll point to some things in the old testament i mean the one that comes to mind is there's a i think was it ten thousand levites get turned against each other in towards sinai and there's all sorts of all sorts of horrifying things that happen throughout throughout scripture that i it doesn't make make sense but it's also it can't make sense from from my view i won't ever be able to make a Oh, I understand that completely. That would probably be more of a red flag if I claimed to know that this is exactly why this happened. Um, mm-hmm. And so, oh, what's the what's the phrase here? The I'm not able to find it, but just the what's the what's the part in the Old Testament where he's like, I will give uh, you know love to a thousand generations or faithfulness to a thousand generations of those who love me, but uh, you know, retribution to the third and fourth generation for the sins of their fathers. You know, like mm-hmm. I can't make sense of that for a God that claims he wants all men to come to a knowledge of the truth. I don't understand what that means. I just have, I just have the gospel in that moment. Mm-hmm. And there's an appropriate humility in that very thing. Um, not unlike Joe before the storm at the end of that book where God shows up and says, brace yourself like a man, Job. I'll question you and you'll answer me. And where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? Where were you when I told the proud seas uh, where to halt this far and no further? And there's a grand poem that doesn't answer a single question Job had about suffering or evil. Um, It just simply is the reality of God shows up and Job humbles himself and says, I ask things too wonderful to know. And so that's, that being put in our place, so to speak, that being small before a big God is just a good place to be and and a good and wholesome place to be. So I have the gospel. That's how I know who my God is. And though he slay me, I will trust him. Job says, very good. I found, I found the passage in in Deuteronomy. I I butchered it (laughs) when I was trying to recall from memory, but, uh, that faithful God keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face. Those who hate him. And it's, it's a thousand years compared to a a thousand generations compared to three, which is just the predominance of God's mercy in that. But don't, don't think Mm -hmm. it's, don't think it's license. Don't think it's, no, this is still a a holy God. That's not my, if if that is what I'm trying to defend, I'm I'm not making the right argument in that time, in that moment. If that is the defeater for someone, that God could show retribution towards those who have rejected him, that's not what the goal of this is. The goal is something different. Yeah, at the same time though, I think that we're not trying to scare people, you know, out of hell or something like that, but mm-hmm. but I th- I think that they they deserve our honesty too and clarity in both law and gospel because if we don't ever go there to their desperate need for mercy then we sort of cut the nerve to the gospel and it, in it, in another way it doesn't make sense because a person feels no need for it so maybe i'm not taking your point yeah. the way you're intending it yeah and maybe and maybe this specific passage isn't the the best example of 
what a defeater would be for someone in terms of looking back to the Old Testament and finding something, some horror that, like, as a piece of evidence towards why could God exist in the face of all of this evil? Mm -hmm. Or or why could they condone this action? Well, we should probably get into that because the famous new atheists, you know, Dawkins and Hitchens and those folks— at least one of them is really heavy on this, the, the, the horrifying mm-hmm. God of the Old Testament, that who would want a, a monster like that? And it's, it's a profound misreading of the Old Testament through a biased lens, but we still should take it on and, and look at how yeah. the heart of grace is revealed in the Old Testament, at least, at yeah. least as powerfully as in the New. Not with this, and that's, but, yeah, that to me is the time when you're, at least in the past, I have used that as the opportunity to make an appeal to something that is way greater than I could possibly understand. And, and the real point of it was like that the, the gospel is there for you to lean on in those mm-hmm. times too. Yeah. And so there we go again with, I could imagine moving the ground pretty easily to someone who wants to take on the fierce God of the old Testament. And can I just ask, do you know Hosea? Mm-hmm. Or you could almost randomly choose, you know, whatever you want to yeah. choose, but because God's heart is beating yeah. in the Old Testament too. So, with the the uh, Packer Lions game isn't going to watch itself, John. <laughs> this is a Thursday. It's a Thursday night, seven o five. I think we should slam some dessert. And yeah, I think we'll have to munch it down pretty fast. Yeah. Um, I don't have much. I was going to recommend a comedian, <laughs> um, Nate Bargatze, B-A-R-G-A-T-Z-E, Nate Bargatze. It comes out in subtle ways that his, I think that he's Christian, he grew up Christian, and he is not, um, doesn't ridicule it. It's completely clean, which is just refreshing, and it's, it's just some funny stuff. I think so, I've seen some of his... Uh... Yeah, it's just, it's just funny. It's just yeah, funny. Yeah, he has some... <laughs> His delivery is so clean. Oh, yeah. Just, just like, so, have, it just flows. I want a beer with this guy. You yeah. Know, it's that kind of a thing. Um, the, what that brings to mind is what a really strange experience I had, just speaking of comedians. So we were in Austin visiting my daughter and son-in-law, and my daughter um, just came about that she had tickets to go to see Jerry Seinfeld. And so we go see Jerry Seinfeld, and... I find Seinfeld amusing. I mean, you know, it's good stuff. I enjoyed the Seinfeld show. And what really surprised me is, and I had my other son-in-law by my side, we were just dying laughing the whole time. Just, we were on the floor laughing at at Seinfeld. I'm like, what's going on here? I mean, I I think he's amusing, but he was destroying it. And, And I think it was something about the audience and something about the environment and, and mm-hmm. it was just, a, it was really a crazy phenomenon. I don't quite know how to explain it yet, but there it is. My dessert. Yeah. Nate's a, I love the way most of his jokes feel like he's just telling a story of just everyday things that just happen. Exactly. In his life. Exactly. Like I went down to the store the other day and saw something dumb. <laughs> this is pretty dumb. <laughs> this is, this what it feels like. It's, of course, that's not. The joke, but he'll he'll just point out some absurdity, and that's the joke. Yeah. And it's just oh, it's good stuff. I think I let me make. He, a, he said so much about marriage. I think he was like, "I've been married for four years, and it's getting pretty serious." <laughs> <laughs> like just 
Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like funny, funny. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Just funny yeah. little differences between you know him and his wife, or like how they'll do something, and it's like, uh, or she like takes a, a certain phrase in a certain way. And he's like, I don't know if that's what you think it means. What it, is what it means? <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, another recommendation, a second one, brief. A musician I think few people probably know about. His name is Josh Garrels, G-A-R-R-E-L-S. He has a song. It's not a Christian song. Most of his songs are in a, in a more indirect way and in a really thought-provoking way. But the, my favorite song of his is Ulysses. So just it's just, he's a soulful person. And that song just gets a hold of me. So yeah. two random recommendations, Josh Garrels, Nate Bergatzi. And I think I have a... Oh, continue, continue. I'm done. Oh, I mean, I, my dessert is similar. Well, one, the, uh, I'm looking outside my window right now, and the magpies are starting to gather. So uh, just to reference back to my first, uh, my, my first dessert from you know, the last episode. Uh, yeah, I also want to see if you're having a good time playing with the toys on the balcony. Um, no, uh, speaking of art, artists, comedians, the soft apologetics of the world, my dessert is also similar. I, I came across a poem that I hadn't heard in, in some time called The Hound of Heaven by Francis Thompson. And uh, it's been a while since I've been moved by just words. I, I can't remember where I it was. It was a clip somewhere where I saw someone reference it, but just to hear the... Uh, like the account of, um, you know, just being chased by this hound of heaven. And eventually, the hound catches up, and then the the hound at the end. Uh, oh no, I'm no, I need to find it again. But the uh, he says at the end uh, something along the lines of, "You've been driving away love because you've been driving away me the whole time," and it it, uh, it struck me. Um, I'm just going to pull it up and find it. He's, it's like this old English that's just very, it flows so well. Uh, here we go at the end. I, yeah, I am he whom thou seekest. Thou dravest love from thee who dravest me. And that's the end. What is so I was just, oh man, it hit me. What is dravest? Dravest, like to drive out. Oh, dravest. Oh, I think that so, is so, really old English. Yeah, so it's it's like Canterbury Tales almost, and, <laughs> <laughs> but it actually from eighteen fifty nine, so classic. maybe not that, but or it, late eighteen hundreds. It's a classic. It's a God, yeah, just God who it, pursued me, chased me down, didn't let me go. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love it. I just uh, made this observation reading Hebrew with a colleague, um, maybe a year ago, maybe more, but we were. We took on Psalm 119, 119, with its 176 verses. And mm-hmm. every single verse has a mention of the Word of God in different terms. Every single one has his statutes, his commands, every single one. And then the last verse, 176, says this. I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I have not forgotten your commands. So the last verse is, come after me. I've strayed, come after mm-hmm. me. Don't let me go. 
So the Hound of Heaven just captures that in just a powerful image. Makes me yeah. think for the song, the song um, Reckless Love is mm. one I love. Yeah. Because it just has that same picture of him coming after me. Yeah. Um, so very good. Very, very good. I, w- I should say uh, apologies in advance for multiple technical difficulties that we've had over the course of this. Uh, I think did both of our computers crash at some point yes. during this recording? Yes. Yes. Thankfully, uh, we've been, uh, we have some measures in place we can you know, save intermittently and pick things up again, but there will be a bit of piecing it together. So if it feels like there was a part of the conversation where, man, it felt like they left for 15 minutes and then tried to pick it up right where they left off. It's because that's what <laughs> that's happened. Exactly. <laughs> that's exactly what happened. So, so there's yeah. a, there might be one or two of those, those this places. It's a bumpy but. ride. And I just want to remind our listeners, do not make a review. Do yeah. not post a review of this podcast unless you want to say more magpies, please. We just need, <laughs> yeah. we demand more magpies. <laughs> yeah, I think the only thing I have to, to finish is, uh, it, um, like, as I was reading this poem, I was also reminded of, uh, there's, I think, an SB speech by Jimmy Valvano, who give, he, he has, like, he said he has, like, three, three things that you should do every day. You should laugh. You should think, and the other one is to be have your emotions move to tears. That's what I was kind of reminded of. It was like it's been a while since that's that's happened with just text. Usually, you know, you'd have a good piece of film or watch a a, a show that has a moving story. It's it's um much easier when you have more stimuli to you're hearing things, you're seeing things, you're getting to like relate to the story. There's a lot more there, but t- by text alone, it's been a minute. So it was, uh, yeah, it was just a, it's an interesting moment. Thought I'd bring it up for dessert as I watched the magpies on my on my balcony, okay, okay. play in the sunshine. So, okay. yeah, this is where uh, the awkward ending is. Who's going to win the game tonight? <laughs> no. <laughs> did, did you? <laughs> <laughs> It's a tough one. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> Who do you want to win? I never know. I never know because um, there's always going to be someone. I, I'm. My family was raised in Detroit. I was raised as a Detroit fan, so I've been permanently heartbroken since I was a wee child. Um, hey, my childhood too with the Packers. My childhood was rough. I mean, we've had <laughs> a lot of nice years since then, but. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness! Um, Bart Starr coaching. <laughs> if my computer dies uh, as we're doing this, we'll just cut out the last part and we'll just keep all of you just talking, <laughs> responding to nothing. <laughs> I saved a couple minutes ago, but it'll just be a monologue with no apparent response, and then laughing at the end. Yeah, like yeah. This, <laughs> yeah.